Hi, I'm John Grisham, and you're listening to the second season of Book Tour. This episode takes place in Brooklyn, New York, home to many great bookstores and writers. My guests tonight are best-selling novelist Amor Tolles and Emma Straub. Emma's new independent bookstore, Books Are Magic, hosted our event at the historic St. Anne's Church. Thanks for listening. Let's start the show. Hi, everybody. I'm Emma Straub. Um, I am a novelist and the owner of Books Are Magic, your local independent bookstore. Oh, thanks. So, so here's the thing. When John Grisham calls you up, I'm just going to pretend it was he just called me directly. He didn't do that, but it's okay. When John Grisham calls you up and says, like, hey... I want to come to Brooklyn and hang out with you and Amortals, and we'll just talk about books for a little while. Does that sound good? You say, yeah, that sounds good. Um, so for those of you who may not be familiar, if you are visiting perhaps from another planet, um, John Grisham has written, I think it's 39 books. Yeah, 39. 39 to start, so far. Um, and is an icon of American literature. Is that fair? I think it's fair. Yeah, it's fair when people are standing up to applaud. Um, okay, what, what was I going to say? Oh, I wrote down notes because I was too excited. Okay. Um, oh, this is what I wanted to say. that I think that there, there's so much that is like scary and unsettling in our world right now and that people really rely on folks like John Grisham who are reliable and satisfying and deliver books that take you away, even though they might take you somewhere where something unsettling is also happening. Um, it's, it really is a, a great service, I think, to people um, to have someone like that who you can absolutely rely on 39 times. Um, also, so joining us is Mr. Amortels, whose birthday is today. So Amor, Amor um, in, in addition to being the birthday boy, is also no slouch um, and uh, is the author of A Gentleman in Moscow, which has been on the bestseller list for something like 45 weeks. Um, we've got it right over there if you haven't read it yet, and The Rules of Civility. Um, yeah, I think, I think I'm just going to stop talking because it's going to be more fun when we're all talking. Thank you guys so much for coming. We are excited. Here. Good evening. Thank you all for being here. Um, uh, I'm in Brooklyn because I published a a novel today. Uh, The Rooster Bar came out today. And and I'm book touring for, uh, for the for the second time in 25 years. I published a book back in June called uh, Camino Island. And it was, uh, thank you. A masterpiece. Thank you. Uh, And it was uh, the first time uh, in many years I had done a book tour. And uh, I was asked repeatedly, why are you doing a book tour after 25 years? And uh, I asked myself the same question. You know, why why am I doing this? And I used to, I had one national book tour in 1992, I guess, with the Pelican Brief. And it was one of those 35 cities in 34 days where you forget where you are. And it's just, it was perfectly miserable. And I, and I told, when I finished, I said, I told Double A, I said, look, you know, I have a choice here. I can, I can tour, I can try to be a celebrity, I can do interviews, or I can go write the next book. And I really don't want to be on the road. And by then, the, the books were, you know, becoming very popular. I didn't have to tour. And uh, so for a number of years, I, I would go to the same five bookstores in, uh, around my home in, in Mississippi, friends of mine who own the bookstores, one in Memphis, one in Jackson, Mississippi, one in Oxford, and a couple others, and I would go there every year, and I would sign books for 10, 12, 15 hours, uh, marathon signings, and that's back when I was really stupid, and I said, <laughs> this is no fun, okay, so I, I cut those down to five or six hours or whatever, and finally just stopped doing it because I, I, don't, I didn't have to do it. The books were okay as without the tour. And over the years, I I would often um, read a great story about a new independent or an old independent bookstore somewhere in this country that was 
bucking the trend and selling books and you know having author events and the owners were filled with enthusiasm and the community supported the store and I would say to myself you know I should go there I should go to that bookstore and hang out and sign books and say thanks and meet some of the people who are buying the books and and just you know go I don't know why why why, why would I go? be a celebrity I guess and um, <laughs> And the next morning, I would forget about that. And then I'd read another story about a bookstore. And so I've sort of felt guilty over the years for not touring because best-selling authors should tour, I think, and, and get out there, even though we don't have to. And last year, Stephen King, who's a buddy of mine, um, did 12 cities and uh, had a ball. He had a great time. And he got a lot of publicity for doing that. And my wife read an article about Stephen King's book tour. And she said, why don't you get out of the house and go? <laughs> so I said, and I had a great time. Last June, we did 13 bookstores. And every store, we did what we're doing tonight. It's being recorded for a podcast that we will, be, will be not published or broadcast, but what's the word? Dropped. Dropped. Yeah. <laughs> I'm kind of slow with the technology, but the podcast is dropped, and, and, uh, and there are 13 of them already dropped, and they're out there. If you can find them somewhere, and, uh, but I, I enjoyed going to the bookstores all over, all over the country, meeting local writers, and doing what we're going to do tonight, talk about writing, reading, book selling, and whatever you want to talk about. And so uh, this is my first stop with the Rooster Bar, and um, about a month ago, I finished... Uh, a gentleman in Moscow and uh, was really uh, taken with the book. My wife read it first. She read Rules of Civility. Then she read Gentleman in Moscow, and she was just raving. And we try to, you know, we, if, if, we, if, we, if we see a book that we both like a lot, we're going we're gonna, to, you know, get the other one to read it. And so I read both books, and I said, this is, this is some really good stuff. This is a new talent, a new voice. And uh, so I sent an email to Amor, invited him to come joined me here tonight. I met him about 30 minutes ago at a bar down the street in Brooklyn. <laughs> he was walking down the street, he looked in the bar, and there I was. And he came in and said, hello, that's how we met. So would you say a few words? It's great. Well, first of all, thank you very much for reaching out and for, the, for your nice remarks about the book. And Emma, it's always a pleasure to be uh, next to you. Um, it's, it's fun to do this kind of thing. Uh, as, as we were talking about earlier, and I think it's all of you know from personal experience, you can go to a reading and there's a single author and, you know, God forbid they read from their book. Um, you know, there's something uh, much more interesting to hear two or three people talk about uh, their craft and, uh, and to mix it up a little bit. So it's, it's sort of a pleasure for me uh, to get to participate in that um, as a variant from being on tour by myself. So what we're going to do for the next uh, hour or so is talk to each other, ask each other questions. There's no script. I mean, there's no, nothing is planned here, okay? So we, we can't screw it up, I don't think. And we can, we can edit it. And if things get slow or, we are, you know, whatever, we'll ask for questions from you guys. And you can ask us anything you want. And so, Emma, the obvious question I have for you is why in the world did you open a bookstore? <laughs> Sometimes I ask myself that question, too. Um, no, the, the, real, the real answer is that uh, Book Court, which many of you knew and loved dearly as I did, um, was a fabulous independent bookstore around the corner from here for 35 years, and I loved it. It was my home base. It was my home base as a reader and my home base as a writer. Because, yeah, I mean, you just said that, you know, like, it's, it's so important to have those, those places where, as a writer, you know that those booksellers are behind you and are going to tell people to read your books um, and support you. Um, and I, Book Court was that place for me. Um, and then the owners retired um, after working very, 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 very hard every day for 35 years. You can't blame them. Um, but my husband and I were so horrified, uh, mostly because we had just moved back to the neighborhood um, because I wanted to be able to walk there. And then they closed. <laughs> I was like, but now I can't walk to a bookstore, so now we have to open a bookstore. Um, that was the basic basic idea. Um, I, just, I just knew that this neighborhood needed it. Um, I needed it personally. My children needed it. Um, and I knew that my husband would work his ass off 
every day at the bookstore, which he does, um, and that I could do things like this all the time. Um, and it's so much fun. It is so much, it is such hard work and so much fun. And people, the store is packed really all day, every day. And um, yeah, it's going gangbusters. So thank, thanks to all of you for, for coming and shopping. So, Amor, do you have a home bookstore? And the reason I asked that was back in the spring when I went to 13 different towns, and most of them were in, um, in the North Carolina, that area, uh, you know, big towns down there. And I talked to a bunch of writers, and like, uh, like Ron Rash in, in Asheville, North Carolina, we were at Malprops, this old bookstore in downtown Asheville. He said, hey, this is my home store. Right. I mean, this is where I belong. These are the people who supported me from the very beginning, they support me now. This is where I come to hang out. And for me, that place is Square Books in Oxford, Mississippi. Because uh, before I even published a book, I would go there and for book signings and drink coffee on the porch and, and, and talk to other writers, Willie Morris and Larry Brown and Barry Hanna and guys who lived there back then. But that is my home store. I've been away now for 20 some odd years, but I, I'm, I'm always connected to it. Do you have that connection? Uh, yeah, the, the only difference is that because of living in New York City, the luxury is that th there's more than one. And I'm not just being diplomatic in saying that. I spend time with the team at Three Lives in the West Village and McNally Jackson in Soho and Shakespeare and Company in the Upper East Side. I've, I've been to Emma stores many times and done work there. And I love Greenlight Books and Word here in Brooklyn. And uh, that group... Good, good answer, Amor. Good well, answer. Woo! Woo! But, you know, I, I mean, one of the interesting things that, that you know, we've all kind of had a chance to witness firsthand is, is that I, I'm new to this field, you know, relative to you, as, you know, for, for sure. But uh, we lived through this phase of the independent bookstores, which had thrived for decades and decades, for 100, over 100 years, facing three uh, onslaughts in a row. You know, between the rise of the superstores like Barnes & Noble, and then the creation of the ebook, and then Amazon.com, or in, you know, in reverse order, those two, all three of those developments would have represented a life-shattering or industry-shattering event for a normal industry. So to get all three in a row put huge pressure on independent bookstores. And, and there was a lot of received wisdom that that was it. You know, say goodbye to the independent bookstores. No one's going to go to them ever again. They're, you know, they don't serve a function. They can't survive economically. And what's been fascinating is to see the sort of the new generation of booksellers like you, like Rebecca Fitting, like Christine Onorati at Word, you know, who have really kind of opened a store knowing those things, knowing that those threats are out there and trying to figure out how do you survive as a neighborhood business when those are, are, are you know, are, are facing you. And they've done so. And so it's been great to see that the independent bookstores are growing again, uh, having been in decline for, for decades. What's your biggest challenge as an independent store? Well, I was just, I was just thinking actually that the, the thing, because when, when you think about that, you know, sort of potential demise, I immediately think about record stores. And the difference, I think the major difference between a bookstore and a record store is that, is that a bookstore is also the venue, you know, the music venue, whereas like record stores sell records, but people don't show up to see the bands playing there. Whereas at a bookstore, people show up to buy the books, but then they also show up to see the authors. Um, and you don't, you know, there's no other, there's no other place other than, I don't know, I mean, a book festival or something, but that, you know, happens once a year in some places. But I think that, um, you know, what, what makes it, what makes it fun for, for those of us in this business and also what makes it um, viable is that you do get authors in person, in the flesh, talking to you, saying things that they haven't said before, having conversations that they haven't had before. Um, and, that, and that is never going to change. Um, I mean, the, the, bi the biggest challenge, I would say, for, for, for me personally and for, for us is that we just, we haven't done it before, so we're doing everything for the first time. Like right now, we're gearing up for our first holiday season, which means that, you know, we sold more books this past weekend than we had sort of since the, since our first weekend that we were open and we were like, oh, oh my God, because on Monday the, the shelves were sort of bare 
We thought, oh. Love to hear that. Yeah, I mean, it was, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. And you realize, oh, man, I need to order 12 copies of the Rooster Bar on Thursday to show up on Monday instead of six. You know, instead of whatever, whatever numbers you're, you, we've sort of gotten used to, that's all got to change. Do you discount bestsellers? We discount our store bestsellers, but not the not the New York Times bestseller. That's a list. huge issue that all independents struggle with. Do you yeah. do you discount? Yeah. You know, how does it affect you? I mean, do you do you do you lose that profit, or do you yeah. scare off that customer, or do you do you go ahead and discount? 10, 15, 25% to, to make the sale? I mean, well, yeah. it's a tough question. What we do, we, you know, and it was something that we thought about. I, I mean, really, we did it. I'm just giving you guys all my secrets. Um, because Book Court You're among did friends. <laughs> I know. I'm audience. the podcast. Easy audience. Uh, but Book Court did it, and so we knew that people in the neighborhood were used to it. And um, when they tried to take it away, people got really mad. Um, so we discount our bestsellers, but... And I don't know, we, we, we have occasionally kicked people off the bestseller list, not to brag, but I was on my own bestseller list all summer long, and I decided that Labor Day, it was done, it was done. Okay. I kicked myself off on Labor Day, um, which seems fair. But so, you know, we're not, we're not totally strict, but, um, but yeah, I don't know, I like to give people a discount. Yeah. Maybe too much, but... But I, I think it's a nice thing to do. Very sweet of you. <laughs> <laughs> so when I, back, back when I broke in the business, it was 25 years ago, um, it was before the Internet, yeah. before Amazon, before. And the great, the great conflict back then was um, independence versus the chains, yeah. uh, Barnes & Noble and Borders, and uh, Books A Million, some other, some other chains. And there was actually a lawsuit filed by the ABA against uh, Barnes & Noble. I mean, the things were pretty... Uh, nasty back then and now 25 years later you know we're pulling for all bookstores to survive especially barnes and noble we've lost borders we've lost like three thousand bookstores in the last 20 years back uh again back in the day uh when i first started getting published remember the old walden bookstores and b dalton and every mall had a a b dalton on one end and a walden book on the on the the other end and they were busy stores and when I published a new novel like uh, the, the Firm, Pelican Brief, Client, the books in the early 90s, uh, you couldn't walk in the door of the Walden Books for all the, the stacks of books. You know, they, it was, they, were, they were heavily discounted. They were selling like crazy. Yeah. But we've lost all those retail points over the last 20 years, 25 years. And it's a big loss. Yeah. And it, that's one reason, you know, book sales have declined. But what's gratifying today is to see the resurgence of independent bookstores, you're always going to have books. You're always going to have independent bookstores, yeah. and and it was it was very important to me 25 years ago when the firm came out because the independents they read books, they read books, they hand sell books, they they tell their customers what to buy, and it had a huge impact on my career. Even I'm not writing literary fiction, you know, I'm writing popular fiction, uh, but all bookstores enjoy selling books. Yeah. And so they were, they were actively hand selling my books 25 years yeah. ago. I, I have a question about, about that because I'm, I feel like I'm in a sort of unique position um, because, I mean, not just as a bookseller, but because I am a writer and my father's a writer also, I think you know, may know my dad. I've actually. met your father on two occasions yeah. and had a wonderful time with him. Good. We were on Broadway together, by the way. On um, Broadway? A, oh. We were on Broadway. Yes. It's a different story. I'll tell, I'll tell it later. Yeah. Um, with Pat Conroy and Stephen King. Yes, that's right. Um, so, but, but my, my question is that, so I was aware of my dad's sort of uh, view of, of publishing, view of sort of the book world as a kid in the 80s and 90s. And then I... I see publishing and the book world extremely differently than he does. Um, and I feel like Amor is, is probably sort of more on, on like my, my team um, in the, like, I mean, my dad laughs at me because I'm like, oh, yeah, so you have to do this, you have to do this, you have to do this, you have to do this. Like, I, I think of, you know, my job as a writer also including all of these other things, um, which can be somewhat goofy, like, Twitter and things like that. Do you 
are there things that you now are, are being pushed to do or encouraged to do, like social media stuff that you would never have dreamed was part of the writer's gig? Yes. <laughs> I'm being pushed yeah. Yeah. and dragged and kicking and screaming uh, <laughs> by close friends of mine at Doubleday, some of whom are in the audience tonight. Yeah, I see um, them. They're, 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 they're blushing. They want uh, Instagram. They want, yeah, I don't tweet. Um, yeah. they, they maintain a beautiful Facebook page for yeah. me yeah. that I look at once a year. Right. Uh, <laughs> Uh, yesterday at Doubleday, I did a, a live Facebook chat. Uh, it was terrifying to, to, be, to be live. Uh, I'm just not, I'm just not going to embrace it because I'm too private to share that much yeah. of myself with the world. I, just, I can't do that. So what did they jo- say? Sorry, I was no, going to no, say that, that, that John's uh, last book, Camino Island, opens with the theft of rare manuscripts from the library at Princeton. Um, and... I'm stealing your story a little bit, but Princeton then invited uh, John to come to the actual library and, in in fact, see some of the manuscripts that that he had written about as being stolen that are F. Scott Fitzgerald's manuscripts. And so he's going tomorrow for the first time to do it. And I I said, that's so great because you should steal something while you're there. (laughs) Because, you know, it'll play really well on social media. You know, I mean, to be a big... Big, lots of attention grabbing. Anyway, so yeah, that's what, the new world. What if I got arrested tomorrow at Princeton yeah, trying to better. steal even a, a better. small library book? I mean, yeah. that'd be a great story. So yeah, a really great I story. I think you should do so, it. You'd have yeah. a great mugshot. Yeah. yeah. Double yeah. day. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. That's why I'm not that's, listening that's to you people, okay? Great mugshot. That's true. That's true. <laughs> yes. All right, so let's talk about writing. Uh, are you really, does it take you five years to write a book? That's awfully slow, okay? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yes, yes, it does take me four years. I mean, I, I spent three years watching TV, and then no, oh yeah, I, but I, I'm a, I'm a. Uh, it takes me, yeah, I, would, I spent a year or more outlining, and then it takes me about a year to a year and a half to write the first draft. But then I spent three years write, revising the book from beginning to end three times. With a lot of focus. Why? Why three times? Is that like just a like magic a, like, number for me? Is I, it? I don't. I get. Yes. Yeah, I guess that's sort of where I start to where it starts to find. It's harder and harder to take a paragraph and improve it. I start to you know say yeah that's that's as good as I'm going to make that or that's as good as I'm going to make that. So it takes me about three rounds. But yeah, so, so that that's that's the process for me. It does take me that long to get the language to where I want to be. Okay, let's back up a little bit uh, because you were a uh, investment professional for many years. Yeah, that's and right. You started writing uh, like we all did. You had a real job, yeah. And you started writing as a, a secret hobby, or was it that secret? Who, who, who knew you were trying to write a novel? Okay, so I started writing fiction as a kid. I wrote it in in high school, college, graduate school. So I, you know, been doing that my whole life. That was my passion. But yes, when I came to New York City, I joined a friend of mine who had started an investment firm by himself, and I joined him, and 21 years later, we were still working side by side. And so for the first 10 years that uh, we worked together, I stopped writing fiction. And, uh, you know, I kind of, I, I told my, my wife when we got engaged, I said, listen, because she didn't know I was a writer. And at that point, sort of nobody, in, none of my peers in New York knew that I was, a, I thought of myself as a writer. And I said to my wife, listen, if, you know, this is really a, my main thing, my main passion, if I don't, write a book I feel good about, a novel that I feel good about, by the time I'm 50, then I will probably end up bitter and a drinker. And, and now I'm just a drinker, which is the, you know, the, way that, it's the way that worked out. But so, yes, yeah, so, so eventually I was like, okay, I'm 35, I better do something. So I spent seven years writing a novel that I didn't like, set that aside, oh, reflected on that. And then I wrote Rules of Civility. And, and that, when that uh, became a bestseller, I retired from my firm and wrote A Gentleman in Moscow as a full-time writer. But yeah, so that's the full cycle. Well, I was, you know, I had a career. Uh, I never considered myself to be a writer. I was writing my first novel, and nobody knew it but my wife. And uh, so I worked on it for three years and, and, and got it finished. And that was my first novel, which, you know, was a flop initially. Didn't, didn't go anywhere. Uh, but after three years of fairly diligent work, uh, almost every day, um, I was in the habit of writing every day. And, and I, I told my wife, I said, you know, I'm going to do this one more time. And I have a, an idea that could be more popular, more commercial, more accessible. 
And if this doesn't work, this little career is going to be history because I, I'm wasting too much time. I, I just never thought of my, I didn't dream of being a writer. I didn't study writing. It came later in life uh, when I was inspired by a story. And so uh, the second book was The Firm. And pretty much like you, when The Firm became a bestseller in 1991, I couldn't wait to close the old law office and walk out. I mean, I didn't, I didn't turn off the lights, man. I was gone. I, just, I, I, I resigned from my position in politics. I stopped practicing law, and I was, I was off to the races. And, um, and that's, that's how it happened. I also knew that um, I'd better get the next book out pretty soon if I was going to write full time. I didn't have – you had a pretty good nest egg when you quit, right? I, Twen- yes, yes, 20, okay. 20 years. Yeah. I, okay, yeah. I, didn't, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't have that, that, that nest egg that would allow me to quit for a long time. I mean, the pressure was on to keep writing the next book and the next book and the next book, and, and, that's, and that's why I started doing a book a year. And also... Um, was know, that your preference, or did you get pressure from the publisher to, to keep that schedule? When The Firm came out in 91, I never thought about it. It didn't cross my mind at that time that I should write the next book pretty soon and get the next book out, in maybe a year or two. I was working on the Pelican Brief, that became the title of it, but I wasn't, yeah, I wasn't in a big hurry to get that out. And this is, a, this is a true story of something that happened here in New York. When the firm came out in March of 91, um, it got off to a fast start, and it's, it surprised, we, were, we were pleasantly surprised. It hit the, hit the big list. And when you hit the big list back then, it, meant it, was, it was the big list, the New York Times list. And so they, they asked me to come back to New York for kind of a victory lap. Mm-hmm. And, I, and we got on NBC Today with Brian Gumbel, and that was a big deal in 1991. And Brian was a big star, and he was very good to me, and we had a great interview. And we were going around Manhattan, uh, popping in bookstores, small bookshops everywhere, and we actually saw uh, clerks hand-selling the firm. Mm-hmm. And they, they were selling the book like crazy. And we had a, we had a luncheon one day, Somewhere in, in Manhattan, I can't remember where it was, and there was, I mentioned Walden Books a while ago. There was a young executive with Walden Books who was seated to my, to my left, and in casual conversation, this young man said, um, he was younger than me, and he said, he said oh, the, the big guys come out every year. Is that all it took? That's all it took. I, ne- <laughs> I, had, never, I had never thought about that. I, mean, I had never thought about it, and I said, Really? He said, hold up. Stephen, back then it was Stephen King, Robert Ludlum, Ken Follett, all your big suspense writers, you know. He said, they come out every year. The big guy, Tom Clancy, uh, uh, Michael, Michael Crichton. The big guys come out every year. And I remember that. And I thought, well, hey, I'm a big guy. I want to be a big guy, okay? <laughs> so I hustled home and I wrote the Pelican Brief in less than two months and got it to New York. And, wow. And I was off, off and, but it was just that casual comment of something I'd never really thought of before because I was such a rookie at it, wow. you know? So what are you writing? Well, <laughs> uh, wait, I, I have some follow-up you, you questions. Have some questions. I have some follow-up questions. Wait, wait, so, wait I, I want to ask you a question that's related to this, okay. which okay. is that, you, so you, you come from a literary family, and as you've pointed out, you know, your, your father... Yeah. Uh, very well known. I didn't have that. I assume you didn't have that. And that, that was, in a way, I can't imagine that. I would, I would think that would be very difficult. Because well, I would I'd be like, <laughs> I was a cantankerous enough teenager that if my father had been a writer, I would be like, I will never write. Right, right, right. Never, ever. No matter what. But so, like, how, what was that like? Um, well, I guess I thought that looks, that looks like fun. That looks like fun and like hard work, but you don't have to leave the house. And, um, and you get to have an interesting life of your own creation. I mean, it, it just, it always just looked perfect to me. Like, I, not, not uncomplicated. And, I, you know, I saw that it was lonely and, you know, that my dad really was, like, in the salt mines by himself every day, you know, from morning till early morning. I mean, he would, you know, I would go to sleep and he would be up in his office like blasting jazz until three o'clock in the morning. Um, no wonder he couldn't write. <laughs> he, he's spending too much time doing it. Okay. I know yeah. you, I know your dad. He's a yeah. principal guy. Yeah. Um, 
So did, but did Peter have a career before he became a writer? No, no, no. He, he, his, uh, his one job was teaching high school at his, teaching English at his high school for three whole years um, after he graduated from college. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess that beats me really because I only had a real job for about six months. Um, I worked in publishing as an editorial assistant and I quit because I had to finish my novel. Um, so the whole, the whole family is seriously unemployed, right? Seriously unemployed. Seriously. Mean, so you, your dad's been a, a full-time writer for over 50 years. Uh, well, no, he was, uh, so I think he was 30, uh, so 40, yeah. 43 years, yeah. Um, but I, yeah, I just, I just, I knew that, you know, yo-ho-ho, a pirate's life for me, sort of a thing. Um, he yeah. told me the story uh, of writing The Talisman with Stephen King. Which, um, if you ever get the chance to write something with Stephen King, don't do it, okay? <laughs> and and your dad tell the story. It told me the story. He would it would be it would alternating chapters. Yeah. And when he wrote a chapter, he would you know spend a lot of time. He worked very slow, a lot of hours, and he would slave over you know the the, the words and the sentences and the st- structure and all that. And he would send it before the before the internet. He would send it to Stephen. You know, here's chapter. Four, uh, you know, I'm waiting on chapter five. Well, two days later, he'd get chapter five from Zoom. Oh, I know. He's a machine. And it, was, it went on like that, and it got to be, I'm not sure it was contentious, but, but there was some friction because your dad was so slow, and Stephen is way too fast. Okay? Oh, man. Listen, I know it. I, uh, we got asked, my father and I got asked to write a story together for this really cool anthology called, oh, man. The first one is called My... my my mother, she killed me. My father, he ate me. Is that right? Somebody's going to... sounds like Stephen King. Yeah, yeah well, no, it, it, it was a collection of fairy tales of new... Of new was, no, so, sorry. So this woman wrote, uh, had a collection, an anthology of stories based on fairy tales, and then she had a new one that was going to be stories based on myths. And she asked my father and I to write a story based on a myth together, and... You know, I was so excited. I'd never been asked to do anything. My brother once got to write a story with my dad when he was about 10 years old, and I'm, I was still salty about it not being me. Um, so I said yes, and we wrote a story, and I said, okay, Dad, you know, I know you don't write short stories very often, but we want this to be, like, about 20 pages. And we had two weeks, and so I said, okay, Dad, I'm going to write two pages you write two pages. I'm going to write two pages. You write two pages. We only have two weeks. So I did my two pages. And then he sent me back like eight pages that was like a dream sequence. And it was like going off. And I was like, Dad, no. And he got so mad at me because I kept just cutting everything he wrote down to, I don't know. It was, it was hard. He should have known better. I mean, he should have. Would you ever collaborate with somebody anymore? No. No. I, <laughs> no. Especially one of your kids? Yeah. I can't imagine. Uh, you know, Stephen King just published a book with, uh, with uh, Owen. Yeah. And, um, and he told me about it last year, and they were going back and forth, chapter. I thought, I've heard this from Peter before. This is probably not going to work very well. But. Yeah, but I think Owen's got those genes. Owen's got the genes. And, uh, you know, I think they're both, they're both little jackrabbits. Yeah. So they got it done. So I got I to ask the question, uh, Amor, and, and this is the question that, that most writers don't like to get, okay, because it's a very easy question. You know, where do you get your ideas? Um, so I'm reading A Gentleman in Moscow, and I'm thinking, who, who could dream up a story like this? Uh, so where'd that come from? Uh, so for those who don't know the book, it's the premise is that, a well, we assume that everybody's read all of our books. Okay. okay. Oh yeah. Just, right. just, just assume that and keep going. Okay. okay sorry. <laughs> sorry. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I, 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 it's, it's reflective of kind of the way I work in as much as it's a process in that I used to spend a lot of time at hotels professionally. I mean, you know, spend a week in a hotel in each, in various cities in any given year. And I was walking into uh, my hotel in Geneva for the eighth year in a row uh, as a professional, and I recognized some of the people in the lobby, and I thought, oh, you know, uh, it's like they they hadn't left. They'd been there the whole time, you know? And I thought, this is a nice hotel, but can you imagine if you actually had to live in it? And in the elevator on the way upstairs, I thought, actually, that's kind of an interesting idea for a book. I I get trapped in a hotel for a long period of time. 
So in my hotel room, I literally took out the hotel stationery and began sketching out the, the basis of the story. And, uh, you know, right off the bat, I thought, ah, if I'm going to take my protagonist and trap him in a, in a hotel for 30 years, he shouldn't be there by preference. Uh, he should be there by force. And that made me think of Russia in this, you know, little leap there. And then that was it. And that was kind of off to the races. You know, okay, guy gets trapped in hotel in Russia, you know, under house arrest, 30 years. And then, as I say, this is what's reflective of my process is, is like that premise is a sentence. And I'll have, a, you know, over the course of five years, I'll have 15 of those. And some of them, I start to dwell on spending more and more and more time thinking about that premise. And it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And then eventually I just start going all into it where, you know, anytime I'm driving, anytime I'm walking, I'm thinking about, you know, another scene from a, the next event, a different character, their background, uh, you know, the plot, whatever. And I just sort of live in the idea for a longer and longer and longer and longer period of time before I start writing. And so, yeah, that's, you know, eventually I can visualize the whole place and everything that happens in it before I get started. Do you know the last scene before you write the first scene? See, I, I was going to ask you about this because I know that both of you, I think that both of you are that smart. And I am not. Well, don't get too carried away now. Well, but I, I mean, I, I do, I like to have an outline. I like to have an outline. I like an outline. Um, but my outlines, I mean, I've, I've only written four books, but, you know, they've gotten shakier and shakier um, with each book, which, which I think is a good thing. I think. We'll see. I don't know. Um, but I think it's a good thing because I'm, I'm sort of trusting myself more. Um, but it does, it does feel a little bit scary. Like at this point I'm, you know, I have like one foot into my new book and I don't, I don't quite know where the next foot is going to land. I know where, I know sort of the shape of it, but I don't know, um, exactly, exactly what's going to happen. I mean, I'm, I'm (laughs) planning on figuring it out, um, before I get there, you know, because I don't, I don't like it to. It sounds like go, you need an outline. I need an outline. No, and I'm, and I'm working on. It. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm in that stage. But I guess I'm. I don't know. I feel like a little fast and loose compared to the two of you because you guys. It sounds like both of you have very clear outlines from. from Is that Jump true, John? Street. Is it? How do you work in that regard? It's a very clear outline. I don't write the first scene until I know the last scene. That's yeah. one of my rules. Yeah. Um, John Irving supposedly said he doesn't write the first sentence yeah. until he writes the last sentence. I'm not that smart, uh, <laughs> but, I, but I do know the final scene. Yeah. And I, I don't write anything until I know. Yeah. Well, to get to that point, you have to have a real clear picture of the whole story. Yeah. And it, that, that's, a, that's a long process. It, it's not any fun. Yeah. A lot of writers um, have a great idea, a great opening, Something dramatic, something, you know, a big plot point, a child in danger, a stalker, what, you know, something that really, a dead body, a smoking gun, grabs your attention, and they jump into it with all this uh, enthusiasm and talent and eagerness, and they write, 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 and they write 100 pages, mm-hmm. and, and then they realize they're not sure where they're going. Yeah. And it's very hard to get out of that mm-hmm. as a writer. And oftentimes they toss it, yeah. and that's a year. They spent a year doing that. I'm far too lazy to waste that much time. And, and so I, I, I carefully outline the story. Yeah. I, you know, they don't always toss it. Sometimes they finish, the, they finish the book and we read it, and halfway through the book we're like, what is, what's going on? That happens all the time. You know, so, that happens. This should have been tossed. Yeah. And I, you know, I, think, I, think of it as, I think of it as that some books that look like, that are written like this. You know, right. They, they start with that big... Right you know, great idea, whether it's a suspense book or a literary novel, but you can just feel it kind of getting farther and farther out without sure where it's going. And I do conscientiously try to write like that instead, you know, right. where everything is coming together. But as you say, I think it, it, I can only do that if I can picture that final scene as you put it. But do, do, your, do your outlines ever change? Like I always write an outline and then I find that I'm, I tweak it as I go sure. because sure. you have... F- like with my with Modern Lovers, my, my last book, I I had this I had a whole outline and I was writing along and then I realized that I kept going over to the neighbor's house. 
in the book. You know, that I was at, I had these characters who I liked and who I thought the book was about, but then I kept wandering down the block to the neighbor's house until I realized that the book was actually equally about both families and that I couldn't, that I had to, I had to rejigger the rest of the, sure. the outline. So you do that, right? Okay. You, there's yeah? no, there's yeah? no, it's impossible to outline <laughs> an, an entire uh, full-length novel. It's yeah. 500 pages long. You yeah. cannot, you cannot predict and plot everything that's going to happen, and you don't want to. Yeah. The surprises are too much fun. The, the character that takes over the narrative, the character that takes over a subplot, you know, that you never saw coming. Yeah. Uh, or, you know, sometimes you, sometimes you feel like the, the, the story is really dragging here. I need something that I didn't plan on. Yeah. And so you're really under pressure to create some excitement with another character or another, another subplot or whatever. And at some point you've got ten different balls in the air with, with subplots revolving around your main plot. And you're thinking, I'm getting dizzy, okay? This is way too much stuff. I feel sorry for my readers. Yeah. Or I've got too many characters in play here. I feel sorry for my reader. I've got to cut some of this out. So it's impossible to outline a full-length book. But when it comes to the basic plot and where you're going and how you get there, when you write suspense and thrillers and mystery, oftentimes you, you have to drop off uh, clues along the way. So you better know where you're going. Yeah. You better know what you need and what you don't need. Yeah. I really, I really enjoy your work because it's obvious that you work slow. I joke about that. I have a hard time, I have a real hard time working slow. When, when, you, when, I, when I write suspense, it, you know, I get into the mood of it, and so I write it, I write it in six months. You know, I write a book in six months. Uh, but what I really enjoy about your stuff is that you can feel the, um, the pace is slow, the research is meticulous, the detail is there, and that only comes about through... Uh, just kind of plotting along and researching and working and redrafting. And so I may give you a hard time about taking five years, but I really, <laughs> thank you. No, I, really, thank I, really you. I really admire you. <laughs> thank you. I have a, a social media question. Because well, oh, I'm the right person to come that. Well, no, what you yeah. said that, uh, you know, that John should go to the, you know, steal something from the library. Yeah. Have you been given like magazine assignments where people want to put you up in a hotel, in a really nice hotel for... An extended period yeah, of time? Yeah, I did get that. And, you know, when the book was coming out, a, a, a major, you know, travel magazine said, listen, we got this great idea. We'll put you up in this hotel. It's fantastic. You're going to love it. It's a, you know, a top-tier hotel, just like, a, you know, the one, we'll put you up there for five days. And I said, oh, yeah, that seems like a great idea. Yeah. And I signed on, and st just stupidly, I didn't check the hotel in advance. <laughs> You know, I just sort of assumed, oh, yeah, it's a great idea. This is in New York City. And so they said, yeah, it's going to be great. So you go, and the hotel, it was, it was basically, it's a, it's a business person's, they took an old fancy hotel from the 30s, and they turned it into a, into a business person's hotel. So, like, the, there was a, a, the bar is in the lobby instead of, like, back in an old room, and there is literally a, an electrical outlet at every seat in the bar, you know? <laughs> So that you can bring your laptop while you drink, since you don't know anybody. And, and like, because nobody would go there unless they were staying there, you know? And I was like, oh, my God. And so, you know, there was, it was, the whole place was like that. And so, and so I, I said, hey, I'm here at the hotel, and um, it's terrible. You know, so I think we should actually come up with a new plan. And they're like, there's no new plan. So, yeah, so then you find yourself doing that. So, yes, I had to write a piece about that hotel instead. So is that your next novel? <laughs> So yeah, what is not the a next hotel, novel? Not a hotel. Do you, do you have the next novel? Yeah, because it's like they say, I have these premises that I get stuck with, and then I think and think and think about them. So I'm, I've been designing my next book for about a year and a half. I'll start writing it in January. And that is about three 18-year-old boys on their way from Kansas to New York City in 1952. And that's like all I would tell you about yeah. that. Yeah. It's exciting. Yeah. <laughs> that leaves a lot out. I mean, it leaves a yeah. lot to be. To... Where are we going with that? Okay. No, so, <laughs> but so you, you, you've been. And we have to wait five years to find out what they do in there. Yeah, that's right. Good grief. That's right. Get busy, man. But so, <laughs> so if you're doing a book every year, and this year you did two, right? Or right. two came out. Right. Are you thinking? about, do you have sort of, is it, is it like Woody, I always think of Woody Allen as like an extreme example, because to make a movie every year, which he does, or to have one come out every year, he must be, 
coming up with ideas for four years from now, outlining for three years from now, writing for two years from now, shooting for next year, and editing this year's at all times. So he's got to constantly have sort of five things moving in parallel. Are, are, you, are you working like that, or do you? I'm, I'm much too lazy for that. Okay. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, not that ambitious. No, it takes me six months. I'll start January the 1st. It's with no idea at that point? Or do you I've have... got the idea right now, yeah. Okay, okay, you've I've got the idea. I've always got two, three ideas. Okay. Um, and um, I'm always playing around with ideas, collecting research for ideas. For example, the opioid crisis is front page, okay? There's got to be a there's got to be a legal issue in there somewhere. Maybe it's a lawsuit against Big Pharma. Maybe the it's, it's medical malpractice against doctors. There's some big story there because the the statistics are, are, are staggering. The numbers are unbelievable, and I'm thinking that it's a hot issue. I'm not going to write it next year, but I'm collecting all kinds of stuff about it now. Any kind of um, you know legal issue that I see, that, you know, the Rooster Bar. Uh, was a story I, I read um, called The Law School Scam that was a, a fine piece in the uh, Atlantic Monthly three years ago um, by a guy named uh, Paul Campos. And I read the story about for-profit law schools. And think, think about this. You, you own a law school. You, they buy and sell law schools. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're operated for profit. And it, it really kind of soured me on the notion of for-profit education. Should we really be making a buck off education? So anyway, I got, I got into the, to the, to the story, and, and there was the novel. I found the novel. So I'm always, I'm always trolling for ideas, and there are three or four at any given time. Most of them don't work. Most of them go away. I can't... You know, I, I, it's, it's fairly easy, as I said a while ago, to, to, to think of a very dynamic, dramatic, compelling opening and maybe a clever ending that you don't foresee. But those middle 400 pages, that's where, the, that's where the work comes in. To sustain the narrative tension for a long period of time. That's, that's where you really, uh, where the challenge is. So, but I'm all, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm always thinking two or three books down the road. And I'm always willing to be surprised with something I didn't see coming. An issue that pops up tomorrow. So uh, I, I get my, st- st- I read newspapers and get stories and, and I try to stay current. Emma, next book and how you get there? Um, well, so with my, with my, uh, so I wrote my first novel. It came out. I went on my book tour. I came home. We just told you the story. And I was pregnant. And I said, oh, okay, I have nine months to write my next book. So I did that. And then the same thing happened again. Where, not in my book tour, not in my book tour, but, but where I, I, was, I was like, oh, I'm pregnant, so I have this many months to write my next book because I understood even more deeply the second time. You're going to have a big family. The, <laughs> so if you keep this up. Oh, my God. Um, but I, I, I understood that the, the, my, my clock was ticking and that I... Um, was about to have less time than I did before, um, but now, now my my third baby came sort of out of nowhere. The bookstore baby. You haven't figured this out yet. Uh, <laughs> um, Your baby came out of somewhere. I mean, it's you know. The baby, you know, the bookstore baby. I I have a five year diary that I write in every night, so I can see every night what I did the last year and the year before that and the year before that and the year before that. And um, and I saw just the other night that we had gone over um, to see our space for the first time a year ago, and we didn't we didn't sign the lease until February. We didn't open until May first. and so it, I mean, it, like it all just happened. And I, and I gave myself a few months to really, uh, you know, nurse the breast, breastfeed the baby, um, so to speak. And then I said, okay, in the fall, when my son, when our older son goes back to school, I'm going to get to work. Um, and so that's what I've done. So I've really just started. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's fun. It, it was an idea that I had before my last book um and i was like all hot and bothered to do it and then something happened as it sometimes does where i just there was something just more urgent that i had to do um an idea that just like was fully formed and i was like um but yeah it's so much fun i think now now that i have 
two human children and one bookstore child, uh, I'm really enjoying my writing time even more just because it seems like this thing, uh, like it now occupies all the time that I would do anything else in for myself. Like, so instead of going to yoga class or I don't know, whatever people do um, for fun, uh, I'm just, like I just am finding such pleasure in working. Do you have a contract with a schedule and a deadline? I sure do. You, so you, you're under contract? Yeah. Do, are you worried about your deadline? It sounds no, like I you're pushed, not. I pushed, my back, I pushed back my last... See, that's what writers do. Deadlines mean nothing. <laughs> you just keep pushing, keep pushing. Yeah, well, you know, I, I, I hadn't done it before. I've always been a very dutiful, like, straight-A student, turn things in early, um, just to get the brownie points. But, but this time, I, when I came home from my last book tour... I was just beyond exhausted, and I just knew, I actually, I was thinking ahead, going back to your comment about the guy at the lunch who said, you know, the big guys come out every year, I was, I was looking ahead at our calendar, thinking, okay, so next year the paperback is out, and if I turn in my book when I'm supposed to, then the year after that my new book will come out, I want a year off. I want to build in a year off. Um, so that's what I did. So I pushed back my deadline. So I beat. You have a deadline? Yes. But I don't know what it is. No? I don't know. My editor is I, I, I believe, I believe that with the way you work. I mean, yeah. My editor's here. He knows. It doesn't mean anything, right? It's a meaningless deadline. Well, yeah, it means a lot to me. Yes, sort of. Oh, yeah. Wait, do you no, actually not know when it's supposed to be due? I do not know that, no. Is I, it, do you do? I'm just getting kind of nosy here, but do you have like one or two books under contract? Do you do you do a multi-book contract, or do you? Uh, <laughs> it is nosy. Um, <laughs> the next question is how much money you making? Okay? Yeah, I know. <laughs> See, we we do we, we got to that. So, uh, but uh, I yes, the, the, this time uh, uh, when Viking Penguin, uh, when a gentleman in Moscow is about to came come out. They came back and said, we'd love to do your next book, and it ended up being that they, they bought the next two books. Yeah, okay. that's, that's pretty common. Yeah, so that's, I am on, uh, I'm on the hook for two books for them, but I just don't remember when. <laughs> <laughs> let's, uh, yeah, let's take some questions on the floor. Yes, ma'am. The story that made me want to first start writing? Yeah, you said you read a story that made you want to write. Well, the, the story that made me want to start writing was an actual thing I saw in a courtroom one day when I was a young lawyer. It was a very dramatic moment in, in a trial, and I, uh, I was not involved in the trial. I was a, kind of a courtroom junkie. I was always hanging around courtrooms watching the good lawyers try cases because I wanted to be a big-time trial lawyer. That was my dream, kind of like Jake and A Time to Kill, the, the guy struggling but dreaming of a big trial. That was, that was me. And so I saw this very dramatic uh, moment, and I thought, you know, I could take that story and make a few changes and fictionalize it here and there and, and, and write a very uh, compelling courtroom drama. And that's how, at the age of uh, 30, I started writing the first thing I ever wrote in my life. I, I was not, again, it wasn't something I dreamed about doing. It just sort of happened. It came, it came late in life. Yes, sir. The question is, I think, as far as the, the, the formula for the book, the, the format. Uh, the, well, formula is a bad word. <laughs> we, we try to avoid that. Um, he, he's cranking them out. Uh, no, I know what you're saying. The, the, the format has always been, uh, you know, I, I, I don't like big, thick books. I don't want to write. I'm too lazy to write them. I'm too lazy to read them. Uh, 300 pages. 350. Your last one's a bit too long, by the way. Um, <laughs> no, but three, three or four hundred pages is what I'd like to read. And I think in, in, in our culture and society today, it's, it's asking a reader a lot to, to pick up a book that's 800 pages long. You know, we've got, we all will do it, but we don't really want to do it. You know, I love Ian McEwen because it's 250 pages. He's a great writer, but it's 250 pages. Um, so the, my, my format is, is about 400 pages in manuscript. That's about roughly 40 chapters, about 10 pages each. With Rogue Lawyer, it was a different, uh, it's just a different kind of story that it started off, it was going to be, um, I wasn't even sure it was going to be a novel. It was scattered stories, and I was able to tie them all together into one thread. Uh, I probably won't do that again. I, lo I love that lawyer. I love that character. 
uh, and I'll probably go back there and use him for other stories about the law and injustice and all that because he's kind of a wild man, and I, I, and I enjoyed writing about him. I'll go back, but I'll probably do it with a different format, the old-fashioned format. Yes, ma'am, back there. My son loves Theodore You have two books of fiction. You have four. Any, any plans to try nonfiction? Not for me. Not for you? Not for me. Not for you. You? I, I would do short form, I think, at some point. Like um, an essay collection? No, I mean short stories. Oh, oh, oh. So I was going to ask you about that, because you, you did a lot of short story work before your, your first novel, right? So would you cycle back to that? Or, I would or, love are you, to. Are you glad to be in, the, in just writing novels and, and well, I, rarely I mean, writing shorter fiction? I, yeah, I never, I never ever write anything short now. Um, but I loved it, and I love—I actually love my short story collection, um, and I love reading short story collections. Um, I think, actually, as a parent of small children, it's—it's it's so much easier to pick up a collection of essays or a collection of short stories because you get to like dip in and out, um, and you get the—you know—that complete satisfaction of reading something without having to read something that's 500 pages. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I've, I've always been a novel. I think I was built as a novelist. Um, so I don't know. Someday, someday. Curtis Sittenfeld has a book of short stories coming out, and I'm, I'm so excited. Last weekend, I read 21 books. What? Um, yeah. My grandson was home. Uh, <laughs> he's 19 months old, and this kid has an extensive library already. Yeah. Yeah. And he, he will sit on my knee forever yeah. if we're turning pages. Yeah. And it's the best stuff I've ever read in my life, okay? Yeah. But I often wonder, who <laughs> writes these books? And then some are very clever. Some are not so clever. Yeah. He doesn't really care. Yeah. But <laughs> I've spent all weekend reading, reading kids' books. Yes, sir. Good question. I have a question for the uh, uh, gentleman in Moscow. Having lived in Moscow from 77 to 80 and been in the Topol Hotel where Have you ever been there and visited that hotel in, uh, you know, in any period pre-collapse of the Soviet Union or the Yes, and I, I, I visited the hotel briefly before I wrote the book. And then when I started writing the book, I decided I would live there for a week, but only when the first draft was done. Mm -hmm. Which goes back to kind of what I was saying earlier. I didn't want the physical reality of the hotel to interfere with the way I had to imagine it to serve the purpose of the story. You know, looking, starting back 50 years ago. Um, and, and most principally, and, and actually, having written the first draft, I then flew to Russia to go stay in the hotel, which, as you know, is, is much longer than flying to, say, London. And that was an anxious flight because I was like, God, I, I hope it is what I think it is, you know, when I get there. And, uh, but, and I knew this in advance. In the book, the Count is sent to live in the attic on the sixth floor of the hotel, and there is no sixth floor in the hotel. <laughs> But I, I don't mind that. You know, that's, that's part of the reinvention of the space. I got a question about Russia. So I'm now translated into uh, 48 or 49 languages, and it's a, real, it's a real treat to get the contracts for Latvia, Lithuania, yeah. Estonia, yeah. Uh, and, and some languages I've never heard of before. So it's, I mean, it's just fun to collect those. And so I'll get, you know, $2,000 from those small markets or whatever. Then the Russian contract comes in, and that's a pretty good-sized country, and it's for like $5,000. So they don't read American writers. They don't read uh, popular, our popular cultural, culture does not extend that far, right? So, so now I'm going to say something which I do not, I've been told, but I have not gone and researched myself. So take this with a grain of salt. What I've been told is, is that copyright law enforcement in Russia is so bad that Publishers can't afford to pay a lot for a right and then pay for the translation and assume they're going to get their money back because the minute they print it, someone can go Xerox it and sell it freely at no cost, and that's such a big part of the market. So, there's, so it's very hard for uh, an honest Russian publisher to pay what would be viewed as a competitive rate in Europe um, for an American book and get their money back. So yes, yeah, so you end up with this... But first of all, it's, it's a lot of American authors don't get put in Russian for that reason. But or, or if they do, it's it's at for a tiffin, uh, you know, puttons. So really, I'm very popular tiffins. in Russia too. That we just don't yeah. need any money for. That's it, right? what that's <laughs> what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. People love you in Russia. And love also, you there. Also, also true for China and India. 
We had you know, the, same, the same problems. The counterfeit problems are huge there, and so it's almost almost nothing. This gentleman here on the front row with the beautiful, uh, is that a black lab seeing eye dog? Yes. He's gorgeous. What's your question? <laughs> How many unfinished manuscripts do we have lying around? You? Um, I have, well, I guess I have one, I have one unfinished manuscript, and then I have three or four um, just not good complete manuscripts <laughs> that, I, that I tried to sell in my 20s and did not, thank God. I've just got the one from my 30s, the failed book that took me seven years, and I will never publish that. Do you have an Well, I consider everything I've written to be brilliant, so there's nothing unpublished. I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to hide a manuscript, okay? It's going it's gonna, to it's gonna get published. Back, way back in the back over there. Yes, ma'am. You, yes. Stand up, please. Oh, this will be fun. Um, <laughs> advice for aspiring writers. Boy, do we have advice. You go first. Oh. Well, what's your, what's your, your best piece of advice? Um, well, I, I think it depends. I mean, my, my, my first piece of advice would be to have confidence and to know that you can do it and to complete it. Um, yeah, I think, I think that, that's my best piece of advice is, to, is to, to make a plan, to make an outline, and do it. Write the whole thing and then worry about the rest. That's, that's what I think. It's a lot easier to worry about and play with a, a whole thing than a part of a thing. Okay, that sounds good. Um, <laughs> I wrote my entire first novel, A Time to Kill, uh, without really knowing what I was doing. I guess I had to have the confidence in the story, but I had no confidence as a writer. I, got, I did yeah. it, I got through it, yeah. but I wasn't, I mean, I was so insecure, yeah. I was afraid to send it off to New York. Right. I Somebody think, I might guess, laugh at me. Yeah. I guess I mean the confidence to complete it. The confidence to complete You don't have to think that you're like, you know, John Grisham. A big you just guy. Have to, right, you right. just have to think, I can do this, I okay. can complete it, I can write a book. What's your best piece of advice? My best piece of advice is, uh, is, is read, write, repeat. You know, that's really it for me, which, which is you, keep, you write, read something, and if you're in, interested in it, intrigued by it, amazed by it, think about that and write something that's not necessarily copying it, but that is spurred by that, and then go read something else and come back and write something else and read something else and write something else. Because I think that's the best way to build craft. And I, I it's a little bit of a, a, I'm a little, I don't love the modern notion of, the, of you know, write what you know. I feel like that's a totally overtaught maxim in the writing programs across the country and even to younger kids. You know, I, that's good for some writers. It's not good for everybody. And there's a lot of virtue in, in exploring what you don't know through writing and going through the imaginative process and putting yourself in somebody else's shoes and, and thinking about yourself in a different time or place or a different race or age or social class, whatever. I, I, I don't think that it's, it has to be this thing about writing what happened to your parents you know, over and over and over. And so, but yeah, so for me, it's read, write, repeat, and that that should be, take you hopefully in a, in a lot of different directions. Yeah, I mean, advice is, is, uh, is easy to give and even easier to ignore. And so, you know, we hesitate to give advice. Um, the, the, one of the first lessons I learned when I was trying to finish my first book, I would, <laughs> I would walk into a bookstore, the old Walden Books again, and I would see all the New York Times bestsellers splashed up there, these beautiful books, and I would, I would just look and say, there's no room for me, and who wants to hear from me? I'm wasting my time. So I wouldn't touch it for a couple of weeks, and, and my wife would nudge me to keep going. But until I realized that I was not going to finish that book until I wrote at least one page a day, I had the story. I had the story, but until I did one page a day, at least one page a day, nothing really happened. You do a page a day over the course of the year, it's a lot of pages. Over the course of two years, you've written a book. And it's, you know, I found the time each morning early, the time, the space, the routine to get that one page written. And until you write a page a day, nothing's going to happen. Okay? Yes, ma'am. Good books that we have read recently that inspire us. Present company excluded, okay? Come on, you own a bookstore. You got to be I able sure to. I sure do. 
No, I you sure should do. you should spit out these things just oh, like yeah. that. No, I mean I well I, I guess the, the problem with owning a bookstore is that is that everything I read comes out in six months. You know, so like right now I'm reading a galley of Meg Wolitzer's new book that's called The Female Persuasion. Um, and it comes out in April and we're launching it at the bookstore and it's like I want to eat every page. And what's really nice is that because she's a friend of mine, I can actually, I send her an email every time I laugh, which is a lot. And, or when she does something like terrible to one of her characters, I say like, how could you? Um, so that, that is one thing that I'm, I'm finding inspiring that I'm reading right this second. But here you go, and then I'll give you a whole list. Uh, in the last year, let's see, I, I, I thought Anne Patch's Commonwealth was great, uh, and a lovely book. It's her only book really about her, that draws on her own life, and it's been sort of this fictionalized version of her, of her youth, and it's, I thought it's terrific. Um, I loved it. I, I interviewed Elizabeth Strout, at your store, and I thought anything, uh, anything's possible. It was a beautiful uh, collection of short stories, and the, the last one is amazing, great culmination. Um, right, I read with three friends, and we read projects, and right now we are going to read uh, the works of Toni Morrison, kind of chronologically, uh, you know, six of her novels, and um, you know, that's going to be a lot of fun, to kind of sink, go through that, that uh, body of work. How often do you meet to talk? We meet on a, once a month, and we've been doing it for 13 years, and we discuss a novel every month over an extended dinner, and, but we, we always do projects. So, you know, five, six, seven novels by the same author in a row. Uh, the past year, uh, let me see, uh, two nonfiction guys I really like, David Grant and uh, Michael Lewis. I, I love their books. David came out with uh, Killers of the Flower Moon back in the spring, which is a fascinating story. Um, I read a book that came out a year ago called Rogue Heroes. It's a nonfiction story of World War II. I enjoy that one. I'm reading uh, John Le Carre's Legacy of Spines. He's one of my favorite writers. Uh, what else is? Oh, uh, on the nightstand uh, below Legacy of Spines is um, uh, Scott Turow's Testimony. I read. I, can't, I have to read the other lawyer writers to keep up with with the competition. You know, to see what they're. And, and, and Scott Turow, David Baldacci, those guys are buddies, and we we always read each other stuff. So. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure if I get inspired by by books that that very often. Uh, there's some of the, my old time favorites I'll go back to and and reread. But you know, we're we're always looking for um, something new, and that's you know we, we can't brag on each other. But that's what I, I really liked about your books. It was something. It's a new voice. It's a new writer, and publishing needs. Uh, you know, I've been around now for almost 30 years. Uh, publishing needs new voices like you guys every year. We need to discover somebody every year to get readers back in the store and, and, and get readers excited again. So um, anyway, wraps it up. Thank you guys for joining me. Thank, Thank you. all for Thank being you, here. Thank you, Emma. <laughs> Thanks to my guest, Amor Tolls and Emma Straub. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to subscribe and listen to other episodes of Book Tour with John Grisham. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcast. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. We'll see you down the road with Book Tour.